I'm going to speak on a kind of unusual topic to start a family weekend. I'm going to speak on the topic of bitterness. And I think when we look at the temptations and the testings of life, we would be shocked if we were to go to the average, even Bible-preaching church on Sunday morning, nationwide. I think we would be shocked to realize how many people are sitting angry at God, but could never admit it. Now, they don't do this, but there's a subtle why. I have a file. I didn't bring it. It's a whole file of notes that I have gotten from people in churches. I remember one lady, I was not finished preaching. It was a very strong Bible preaching church. It was not a willy-nilly uh, church where people just get up and run around. And before I was done preaching, this, she was the head musician in the church. The piano and the organ and a uh, faithful, faithful couple. And I noticed she was weeping and she got on her knees at the steps of, of the platform before I was done preaching. And she was on her knees there sobbing. I got with her afterwards and I said, uh, I'm not sure what you're battling, but know this, God loves you with a perfect love and God cares. That night I preached on the topic of anger that a lot of times comes out of bitterness. She said, no one in the church would have expected, my, my husband and I are faithful she said, I look at others in the church and I think, why did God bless them that way? And yet I'm dealing with what my husband and I have to deal with. She said, I never verbalized. She said, but my spirit certainly manifested that. And she said, I got on my knees and I poured out my heart to God. She said, I got home and asked my husband's forgiveness. She said, I would growl at him when he would ask her. She said she was a writer for a big newspaper. She said, I went to the editorial people that I worked with and wrote with and she said asked their forgiveness because I knew they had picked up in my spirit a, a very sour sour spirit she said ask God's forgiveness first I had to come to repentance of that thing and I have the letter it's a, about a two two and a half page letter handwritten I have several others faithful faithful people but they could not ever they thought if I dare share what's going on in my heart, I know I would not be understood and probably rejected. If people only knew how much other people care. You know why? Because, believe it or not, we are not the only ones going through the depth of despair at times. And when you begin to bear your heart and somebody says, wait a minute, let me share what's happened with us. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the hurt that we've carried. And yet, it's such a sweetness when these things begin to get out of the life and uh, I thought it's it's something it'd be worth addressing because not everyone has the ideal circumstance the book that I wrote he talked about a new normal what do you do when the phone rings when you hang up you know there'll never be another normal day in my life maybe a death in the family maybe a divorce notice maybe a child that has gone around list the things and you know normal is gone and as he mentioned, I took biblical illustrations and it has been such a need meter. VCY, we, we did an interview on VCY radio. They've, they're right at a thousand books already that have been ordered over the air besides the one that are ordered directly from Amazon. You know what it is? People say this book could not have come at a better time. Friends of ours called from Michigan and said, you know, so-and-so, we talked to them and we said, you need to get a hold of Les. He gets to our website and he sends us a message and Charlene sends him my phone number. He's been in ministry, he's 69 years old, and, in fact, 79 years old. 
we worked in ministry together for some time, not in the same area, but with the same organization. They had a shocking thing happen within the staff. that almost like a coup. He called and we were on Bluetooth driving and so we were counseling uh, with him. And I said, I'm going to send you a book. I said, uh, I think some of the things in there, I use a lot of Bible illustrations of people with less than ideal scenarios. Uh, we mailed the book out and got a book on Saturday. He texted me Saturday evening. said, I got the book. I'm halfway through it. And uh, went to sleep. Never woke up. Must have died. I told Charlene, probably a broken heart. I don't know. But his nephew came in the room and found him. And his Bible was open. And my book was open. And the chapter that he had read halfway through, it was there. And he took a picture. And we got a picture sent to us. The last thing he did before he pillowed his head was in the Word, asking God for answers. And boy, he got a big one. He got an early promotion. Nothing better than that. And so here we are rejoicing in the Lord. And boy, what a cause of rejoicing. And if there's ever a time when we need to be reflecting the joy of the Lord, it is right now in a world that is just in absolute turmoil. The exciting part to me is all it's leading right towards we know what. And boy, you know, sometimes you feel like if I could jump in, I can't jump. My feet dragged it from Charlene and I do nursing home shuffle. We can't, we spark each other and uh, we can't get our feet off the floor. But don't you ever feel like going outside and jumping and hoping one time you keep going? But reality is we're here. Now look in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, I'm going to speak on that whole first chapter of Ruth. But what precedes the book of Ruth? The book of Judges. In the last verse in Judges, Chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. In other words, the nation was in complete disarray. God would send judges. There'd be a time of repentance. They would have the word. They would have repentance. They would have reaffirmation. They would have forgiveness. And then a cycle. And then sin supplication, servitude, back to that, and the cycles of the judges. And in the days, no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And now chapter 1 of Ruth, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. In other words, Ruth is in the context of the time of judges. Everything was in disarray. What do you do when everything looks black? Some people say, I'm moving. Where? Best thing to do, move to Iowa. You know what I'm saying? With people have sense. And at least you can hide there for a while. But where are you going to go? Well, California, nicer climate. Well, you go there in a $60,000 car, come home in a $200,000 Greyhound. Because the likelihood of you having your car when you get back. Well, maybe I should have stayed in the cornfield. No, you going, running is not the answer. But you know what happened to Ruth and Elimelech? Look what it says. Now, it came to pass in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. My word, what caused the famine? God's judgment on a nation that did right in its own eyes. Everyone who was in rulership did what he thought was right. And a certain man of Benjamin went to sojourn in the country of Moab and his wife and two sons. So Elimelech gets Ruth, uh, gets Naomi and says, Naomi, get the kids. We're, we're leaving. This is bad news. 
rather than staying in the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means, they went and headed to the land of Moab. But it was a sojourn. We're just going to take a little trip. And the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons Malon and Chilion, Ephraimites of Bethlehem, Judah. And it came to pass in the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. So number one, I want to consider the sources of bitterness as we travel through this chapter. What is bitterness? It has been defined as anger fully developed. It has been defined as discontent fully established. It has been defined as determined disobedience. And so when you see the attitudes that begin to develop, we see these factors of satanic temptation to try to turn us aside. With Paul, it was physical. With Job, it was circumstantial. With Peter, it was psychological. But Satan tried in every which way to turn aside. And here we find number one source of bitterness, dissatisfaction. Famine came in and they got dissatisfied. So easy to get dissatisfied. You wake up discontent rather than rejoicing. You wake up with a little bit of a, God, why? Why this? Can't you hear? Can't you see what's going on? Dissatisfaction. Step number one to that steps. Where Naomi said, don't call me. Naomi called me Mara, which is bitter. So what are some things that cause dissatisfaction? In some cases, it's marital dissatisfaction. You think, you know, I don't know, maybe I married the wrong one. I said, if you marry, you you had the right one. Don't try tricking yourself out of that. Others, occupational. You say, you know what, I go to work, but I don't like it. I remember our doctor, in fact, our our family doctor up in Iron Mountain, Michigan, I think, what is he, honey, no, 90, 90 something, and he's kind of bent over, but he's keeping, all the nurses and people say, well, we dread the day that he's gone. And I said, boy, you've been at this a long time. He said, I've never worked a day in my life. He said, when you love what you do, you never go to work. You know, what a blessing. If we could see work in that light, God, the earliest form of worship that God gave to Adam was work. Work was before the fall. Work was before sin. It was his earliest form of worship. Two very aggressive Hebrew terms. Occupational discontentment. Maybe physical discontentment. All the years that we did the leadership conference at the Wilds for 40 years or so, and it was a two-week program. Junior, seniors, and first-year college students could apply and go through the rigors of getting into that program. Uh, first week was a 30-minute one-on-one interview. The second week was a 30-minute interview to see what had happened in that previous week. And I was interviewing one girl, and I said, uh, what don't you like about yourself? And I said, maybe there's nothing, but sometimes people are bugged. She said, my nose is too big. I said, if it's sucking air, what's the difference? She said, God didn't give you a nose for design. It's to suck air. You get to suck more air than the rest of us. What are you discouraged about that for? I'm not sure how well she accepted my my wise counsel. But that's true, isn't it? You got a big nose, you get to suck more than the rest of us. Physical. What is it? Maybe some physical aspect. Or maybe it's personal. You say, Les, I'm just getting so worn out, I cannot conquer something in my life. And it's wearing me out. Personal. So dissatisfaction came in. Then departure came in. 
and guard your departures because if your departure is premised on we can no longer trust God, we have to make our own way, then you can get into some real trouble. And her departure, they were leaving the house of bread to go to Moab, a heathen nation. And then disaster was the third thing that came in as that source of bitterness. Disaster. The husband died. Look, it says in verse 3, in Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. So now, it's not working out that well. So now Naomi is with her two sons, Malon and Chilion. And then, verse 6, and she arose with her daughter-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. And so you see what happened here. As her husband died, then she had her two sons left. <clears throat> you see in verse 4, and they took of them wives of the women of Moab. So they, they, uh, they marry Moabitess women. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. So here this soldier now is a ten year stay. And Malon and Chilion died. Now the sons are gone. More disaster comes in. You know, when you start making your own steps and making your own plans and leaving where God had placed you to reflect his glory, trouble comes. And then there's Malon and Chilion, an interesting name, sickly and piling, pining. One means, means sickly and the other name means pining. So they must not have been specimens of health to begin with. Can you imagine your son going over to their house and say, can, kids, can sickly come out and play? Oh, he's not feeling well. How about pining? Oh, he's in bed. I mean, you can imagine going in, you want to ride bikes to you know, sickly and pining. No, they're hanging around the house today. So disaster. Lost a husband. Lost the sons. Left with two daughters-in-law. Verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. She had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Isn't it interesting? They were in deep trouble. And you know what? They were wanting to get back to the house of bread. They left it because the circumstance was negative. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. And so now we see symptoms in Naomi. Number one symptom we see here now is the future seemed hopeless. Ever get to a point in life when you look ahead and you say, what in the world is there to look forward to? Everything is dark. And she told, go return unto your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you. And she said, don't stay with me. Verse 9, the Lord grant you that you may find rest each of you in your the house of your husband. Then she kissed him and lifted up her voice and wept. And they said unto her, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Here's Naomi, this godly woman who was a godly leader with a godly husband in the house of bread during the time of judges. And the pressure got so great when God was bringing judgment on the land. The famine came in, the departure and the disaster. Now Naomi is saying, don't hang with me. My future is hopeless. Ever get to a point where, why go on? Hopeless. That's one of the, one of the last steps 
in self-destruction is saying there's absolutely no hope. No hope. And you, those of you who are in counseling, maybe some of you are in the field of medicine, maybe some of you are in some other area where you're working with people and you realize that when they get to a point of no hope, there's very little, unless God himself intervenes, there's very little that can be done to bring them to right thinking. Then friends were pushed away. What's the second symptom we see in Naomi? The future was him. Now she pushes friends away in verse 12. Turn again, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you stay uh, them from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now a flagrant blaming of God. This godly woman in a very good circumstance, seemingly problem-free, in the house of bread and famine comes and the husband makes a decision. Obviously did not consult with God's mind and God's will. They would have stayed there in that place. Now there's a flagrant blaming of God. And say, the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Ever, ever feel that? I, I don't know. I pray and it seems to go nowhere. Is God not hearing? It's, it's almost like, like Habakkuk. God, don't you see? Are you not hearing? It's almost like Psalm 77. The depths of depression of Asaph, the man who was in charge of the praise and worship of the nation of Israel, was in such deep distress. Everything was black to him. He said, I could not speak. My spirit was overwhelmed. He's, if one more straw falls on my hay wagon, all four tires are going to blow. Ever feel that way sometimes? I cannot take another thing. I can't. I, I'm done. And so the... Blaming of God. Asaph said, sleep one from me. Ever have trouble going to sleep? You lay on your left side. That doesn't work. You lay on your right side. That doesn't sleep. Lay in your stomach like I do sometimes in rock. And that doesn't seem to work. No sleep. And so in a subtle way, why God? Why? Are you not hearing me? That's what Asaph said. God, have you disappeared? Don't you care for us anymore? Remember, he was the head of the praise of the nation of Israel. He was the praise and worship leader of the whole nation. And then we see verses 14 and 15. They lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth claimed unto her. And she said, Behold thy, husband, behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her. What's the next word? Gods. G-O-D-S. Small g. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Now was a flawed testimony. The symptom of her bitterness. Future looked hopeless. Friends pushed away. Flagrant blaming God. And a flawed testimony. Go back to your nation and go back to your gods. My God has left me hanging. Don't follow me. What a testimony from a woman who was once a godly woman in a godly family. In a godly place. And because the condition of the whole region in the time of judges and everything was in topsy-turvy. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And instead of staying there with salt and light, instead of staying there and holding up the name of God and magnifying Him, they depart. And then we see a fallen countenance. Hopeless, friends pushed away, flagrant blaming of God, flawed testimony. And now look in verse 19. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass that when they were come to Bethlehem. Now, 
Naomi sends Orpah back, but Ruth says, I'm going to cling to you. Your gods will be my God. So they went, the two of them, until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city moved about them and said, Is this Naomi? And I looked at commentaries on this, and it seems to imply that that ten years of stress and strain had so changed her appearance physically. Is that Naomi? Fallen countenance. Remember, God asked Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Ever see someone whose spirit is gone and their countenance is fallen? If you've ever done much teaching or preaching, and you'll see people in the congregation with a fallen countenance. And boy, if looks could kill, they'd be mass murderers. And their face changes. It's very evident. And then a false view of past. What's another symptom that Naomi had? A false view of the past. Look in verse 21. We'll go to verse 21. And she said unto him, Call me not Naomi. Call me Mara. Here again, what does she say? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. There she goes, blaming God again. I went out full. And the Lord brought me back empty. Really? I thought they left because there was famine. She's flawed view of the past. When we get bitter, we start thinking so screwy. We had it made. Really? Is that why you went on a 10-year vacation and things crashed? How easy is it to look back? Good old days? Well, maybe the good old days were not really good old days. I remember our good old days. and I'm kind of glad that some things have changed. Running water, for one, that we did not have in the good old days. Indoor plumbing that we did not have in the good old days. You, you all, many of you remember very well the good old days. But it turns a false view of the past. And then another one, a failure to see present blessings. She said, I went out full. The Lord brought me home again empty. Why call ye me Naomi? Seeing the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabites and her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem when? In the beginning of barley harvest. Here she is with a twisted mug. My dad used to tell me, I remember we cut wood all day long and, and it was raining and we went in for supper. And, and dad said, we're going out to get one more load. And I said, oh, we've been out there all day. He said, straighten up that mug, boy. My dad would pound his fist on the table. There'd be no lazy bums in this house. Straighten up that mug. He said, next thing I know, I'll have to put food straight in your mouth. And I'm thinking, man, we poured about eight or nine hours in that rain in the woods. And I didn't think that I was unable to bring food to my mouth. Because sometimes my hand is a blur uh, when I'm hungry. But you know how it is. Failure to see present blessings. Here they came. Abundance. Ruth maintained her spirit. When she saw Naomi in her better days, she got a picture and she got a handle on who Jehovah was. She got the real deal. And she was not going to let Naomi turn her aside. She was not going to let a circumstance turn her aside. She was rejoicing in the Jehovah who was introduced to her by now bitter Naomi. And here they are beginning a barley harvest. In chapter 2 and verse 1, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth, a family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean years of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. She went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging to Boaz 
who was of the kindred of Elimelech, related to Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. He's a tremendous leader, godly leader. The Lord be with you. These are his workers. And they answered and said, The Lord bless thee. Then Boaz said unto his servants that was said over the reapers, Who is this looker over here? Who is this damsel? Because Ruth must have been a looker. And here, older, Boaz looks and says, Wow. I'm going to make sure she works in the right spot so I can check on her regularly. Every night she'd come home from work, she'd have a whole pile of goodies. And Naomi was still so bitter, she couldn't enjoy present blessing because that bitter spirit just held on. But didn't affect Ruth. She came in with that. So what's the solution to bitterness in our text? Return to God's place. Step number one. You remember when you had fullness of rejoicing and fullness of joy? Could not wait to get with God's people. Like these kids can't wait to get to camp. Charlene and I sat on that new, newly designed, I love that newly designed deck out there. Boy, I, we're going to spend a lot of time there if I can make it all the way down the hill and back up with coffee. I sit there also. I'm going to give it a whirl. Return to God's place. Everybody say, Lord, I need to get on my knees tonight and say, God, forgive me. I've been a complainer. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the murmuring I've had in my spirit against questioning you and questioning your goodness. God, I know you're great. I know you gave salvation. I know I'm your child. But I've turned sour. And I, I want to get back to my place. And then secondly, recognize a person. Look in verse 1. His name was Boaz. He became the kinsman redeemer. The picture of Christ. Now let me ask you this. Who was Boaz's mother? Rahab the harlot. Read Matthew chapter 1. Read the genealogies. This Boaz was a son of a harlot. This son of the harlot meets a Moabite from a heathen land. And they together are placed into the line of the Messiah. You know what that's called? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. No failure is ever final as long as the grace of God is operating. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. Because failures never are final as long as God's grace is operable. And so you will see that time come. Recognize the person. Who is our kinsman redeemer? We know who it is. Who bought us with his precious blood. Well, I'll tell you, when you stop to look at the cross and you stop to think when God, Christ cried, it is finished. You know what that made it possible for us? To have every single sin. You realize every bit of your sin was future when Christ cried, it is finished. He said, well, how many times should I confess? Seemed like, uh, I, I'm not confessing that sin anymore because that's the 288th time. No, when you go to God, that's the first time. Because he doesn't keep a record. When you confess that's under the blood that's gone, depths of the deepest sea, and God has a no fishing sign posted down there for Satan. Part of the east is from the west. Satan can take off from in the east, heading west to go and look for your sin. And he comes up in the east and he's still heading west. Not findable. So it's not the 288th time. It's the first time when you come to confess. Because when you confess that sin, it's gone. Why? Because he bore our full wrath on the cross. Three hours of darkness. What was happening in that three hours? The full wrath of a holy God was being poured out to pay the penalty. That's called propitiation. Pay the penalty for our sin. We never will face our sin. When you die and you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, it is not 
a judgment of sin. It's a measuring of works. Your sin is gone. Period. Hard for us to comprehend that. But it's true. And when he came out of that three hours, because God's holiness had to be satisfied so that his love could be fully manifested to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so when you look at our kinsman redeemer who bought us with his precious blood, we're his child, loved with a perfect love. We can't comprehend it. But we believe it and apply it by faith. When you stop and think, I love those songs we sang tonight. Because the attributes of God being magnified. The nature and the character of God being magnified. And so you return to God's place. You recognize the person. And you reap eternal rewards. You know what I think? uh, Mother's Day, oftentimes we hear messages on Proverbs 31. The virtuous woman. You know who I believe that is? I believe that's Ruth. Because here you have Solomon telling of this virtuous woman who was told by David, his dad, and David's dad told him. And and it goes back, the great, great, great grandmother of David. Now Solomon is speaking of this. When you look at all the characteristics, and what did Boaz say in chapter 3? All the people in town know you are a virtuous woman. And so now Naomi's perking up. Hmm. This will work out pretty good. I know, I know Boaz is in broke and he's really taking a shining to Ruth. And this might really work out because Ruth and I are like this. Where before we were becoming like this. And I'm so glad that she didn't listen to me. Now she's picking up on that. And then especially when you stop to think, when you look at the line of the Messiah, a heathen. And where did the Moabites come from? Was it not from Lot having an incestuous relationship with his daughters in a cave while he was drunk. That's the Moabites. He found the Moabites and Ammonites, two nations that grew up to hate God. And out of Moab comes Ruth, and out of the son of Arlet comes Boaz. And together, in the line of the Messiah. be interesting sometimes for you to just read who all is in that line. And you're going to say, amazing grace. And you know what? Then you look at yourself and say, God, I don't deserve either, but your amazing grace. And boy, that should, that's enough to make a Presbyterian take a running fit. And, uh, and I think when we look at that whole aspect of it, what a blessing to realize and uh, became the possessors of all, all of that. And I thought maybe tonight might be a good reminder who we are in Christ what we have in Christ. And may we never get sour on that because things look bleak. Things look dark. Remember this, God is not pacing over anything. God has everything in very, very good control. Boy, what a blessing that is to think of.